0: I mean, and and I come back to what you asked about, Who, who am I? I am an emergent system. I am something that has come about as a result of all the variables that could have happened over the course of my life to be who I am now. And there are multiple other means that I could have been as a result of those variables. So I am an emergent property. This inhaler is an emergent property. The concept is an emergent property of what happened in my brain, but the actual product is an emergent property of the people who've worked on it the serendipitous luck i've had in finding the correct materials the individual influence that other people have had from a design perspective from a pharmacology perspective from a physics perspective so it is emerging it's not going to see succeed or fail it's going to continue to emerge and even when it's in market it will have emerged into market because of other factors that i still don't have any control over so i'm very aware now in my life that fear of failure is not something I need to have not because it might fail but because failure isn't really a thing.
1: This week's guest is Don Smith. I won't say much about Don other than the fact that he's an inspiring example of how transformation can occur in anyone's life. If you set your mind to it, take bold actions and seek help and advice from others. From a career as an advertising creative, Don is now the inventor of One Inhaler, a single-dose dry powder, pool of manure inhaler, and also in development with his Kelp Systems invention, a revolutionary marine energy delivery system. I always learn a lot from my guests, but with Don, he really made me reframe my understanding and perception towards success and failure after he explained the concept of emergence. Don is not only a master storyteller, he's also a domain expert in the area of advertising and branding, and he's well on his way to becoming a difference maker in people's lives through his invention of the one inhaler. Now, over to Don. All right, Don, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for making the time. And where do I find you on this evening, on this sunny afternoon in Austin?
0: Where are you? Yeah. I'm, I'm having a cold evening in Edinburgh. So I've just, <laughs> I've just returned from London. I spend, I spend most of my time these days between London and Edinburgh. And I am I'm what is, is, as an acronym, technically known as a willy. Work in London, live in Edinburgh. So that's a, that's a thing. There are trainfuls of people so- on Monday mornings and Friday evenings. Trains full of willies travelling back and forth between the two cities.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we could have a lot of fun with that. Well, anyway, before we get into some big questions about you, a little bit of an intro as to what you do. So in full transparency, we crossed paths many years ago at an ad agency in Edinburgh called Leith Agency, uh, where at that point in my life, I was a, an account director working on Tenants Lager account in, in Scotland. And uh, you were a young talented up and coming full of energy and ideas creative working with your partner Alex Mm -hmm. and you've gone on to have a pretty stellar career in advertising moving into the digital realm and really pivoting big time probably more than any creative that I've ever worked with to moving away from creativity for the benefit of clients to creating solutions as an inventor for the benefit benefit of humankind with your one one hailer invention Mm -hmm. and some other bubbling under the surface ideas will mention as well yeah so without people jumping to conclusions about what i've just described i'd like you to maybe start by telling us who you are as a human being who you consider
0: yourself to be okay well that's a huge question Uh, i'm certainly a different person I'm certainly a different person now than when we first met. I think the two of us were probably Thank- relatively...
1: Thankfully, we, yeah, you wouldn't want to have met me on a train back then.
0: No, no, no. We were both quite cliched. I was a, a, young, a young egomaniac creative with a ponytail, and you were the sort of the, the suited and booted account man with the red BMW, if I, if I remember correctly. Uh,
1: you so, do remember correctly. Embarrassing. i think we not so...
0: We both evolved in many positive ways since those days, I'd like to think. But in answer to your question, which is a great big existential difficult one, I've never really known who I am. I've always had an issue with that. I think there's a a reality to all of us. Us speaking today as who we are today is testament to that, that we are a, a constantly evolving emergent property of everything that we are genetically historically the experiences that we have the influences that we that we have the good influences the bad influences everything crafts us and there is no there is no sort of anchored individual me at any given moment in time it's it's a constantly changing thing and i think i think if one of the things that really does make me me is i'm kind of quite happy with that I like that. I like that change. I'm open to that change and I embrace the, I embrace every sort of lesson that comes to me in life. And I try to sort of integrate that back into who I am.
1: So Mm -hmm. I guess
0: I'm always trying to push myself into being the next iteration of, of this, this guy, this Don Smith guy that I, I kind of know iterations of him in the past, but I'm not, ch- not entirely sure who he's going to be.
1: I, I'm reading a book at the moment. It's across there on my sofa called Creative Hustle. It's, it's actually not a great title because I don't think it's about creative hustle. It's more about an exploration of self, giving lots of examples. It's a Stanford University publication. And it's got me thinking deeply about things I think we take for granted. What are our beliefs? Our desires and the resultant actions we take because of those beliefs and desires—it's a combination, as you say, a never-evolving, almost biological, metaphysical feast that we are. But anchored in all that are our principles, are our values, our ethics, our morals. Because you use these words willy-nilly in a way—you go, "Ah, oh, yeah, what are your principles, what are your values." I know coming from advertising, we spent a lot of time talking to brands about their brand values and their brand principles and their brand essence and all that. But really, when you dive into those words and go and say, well, if it's a, there's a hierarchy and, there's a, and they're all connected, what's foundational in it? What's mm-hmm. foundational in making you, you? And mm-hmm. I suspect a lot of it, it, it comes down to your moral compass and your ethics, your outlook on life and, that, and that, that is what changes. So maybe I'm gonna just throw this at you and go, well, okay, if you are evolving, what would you say your core ethics that guide you, your moral compass or your principles, what is it, what's important to you as you, that makes you the Don Smith?
0: It's very, yeah, it's very interesting question. Very interesting on two levels, psychologically and philosophically. So mm-hmm. I think if you start with the psychological stuff, I have, I have the benefit of uh, my fiancée is a psychotherapist mm-hmm. and has studied psychotherapy for all of her life. So if I say something smart, it's usually going to be referred back to her being the smart one.
1: And if she listens so, to this, you could never have said anything other than the benefit of her being a
0: psychotherapist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 mm. it's been, I'm constantly in yeah. an analysis and learning as a result. Yeah. But I, I, I often go back. I do like the ocean scale of, of the basic mm-hmm. foundational elements of it. So openness, conscientiousness, um, extroversion, agreeableness, neuroticism. Uh. So when I, when I look at myself on that scale, I can understand some of the inherent traits I have, probably from a genetic function. I'm, I'm very agreeable. I'm very conscientious. I'm very open. I'm not actually that neurotic. I'm quite a mm-hmm. calm person. And then, which one have I missed there? Extroversion. Yes. Yeah, so I'm I'm mm-hmm. I'm relatively extroverted, but I'm sw- I I swings and roundabouts with that with me because I can really I'm very happy in my own company, but I'm also I've become confident in, in in groups. So there's an element of me that is based on those foundational truths. And then there is mm-hmm. the me that has emerged through the influences I've had in life, both from my parents and my other influences—siblings, and friends, and family, and, and and bosses, and colleagues, and all of the other people. And then there's this the, the sort of this, this secondary deeper influence, which is the the books you've read, you've read books you've read, mm-hmm. and the people who influence you from the past. It's that I always love that. I think it's Epictetus quote the 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 Stoic who said, you really start to emerge in yourself once you start speaking to the dead. So you have to go through history and find the, the, the lessons of the past from the, from the writers of the past. So so the, on that front of the, the sort of moral and ethical thing, I think there are influences from, I always find this an interesting one, growing up in that late 70s, early 80s era, Well, most of my influences were superhero films. So I I loved the original Superman and all of the fundamental, fundamental hero's quest elements to the personality of Superman. And the reference then, as you get older and you read more the, the, the connection to Nietzsche's Ubermensch, that overman idea and the kind of being able to transcend the, the base level instincts of your, of your nature. I think that's a, been a huge influence—the whole Jedi thing from Star Wars. You know, the the, the fight between good and evil, the ability mm-hmm. to do the right thing in the right in the right moment—all those things I think have influenced me. And definitely, becoming a father made a huge difference mm-hmm. because you go, okay, I have to influence this life that I've that I've created, and I have to set a certain amount of positive foundational values and principles on which he can. Not only hear, but he has to see them. More importantly, what I say is one thing, but what I do is more critical for him in his ability to uh, to judge me effectively and judge what he should be or could be in relation to that. So I very much felt that the being a father very, really influenced, and it was probably at that stage that I, I really made the decision to to transfer what I was doing or the, using the skills I had for other people's benefit, you know, the working in advertising, working in digital, helping other people take their products to market, helping other people change the world in the way that they want to change the world, and started to think about how, how can I use these skills to do what I, or to apply them in such a way as to have an outcome that would be, a good, a good influence on my son. Mm-hmm. So although I fundamentally believe everything that I say about, I want to be an inventor. I want to, I want to change the world. I want to kind of, you know, save humanity from itself. I want to make the future sustainable for all of us and future generations. There's a sense of doing it mainly for him. But then, if I do it mainly for him, then maybe I influence others as a result. And as a result mm-hmm. of influencing him and my, and my 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 other other kids in my life, nieces nephews other other people friends children you just think well maybe you're you're throwing a a, a good stone in the water and creating positive ripples you, <laughs> so, so, the... you ask me a question and no, I can I, I can go on, on, off on tangents. <laughs> no, no
1: no no it's very interesting your how you answered it the question I asked you is who are you and you've you've answered that in a very detailed and interesting way but I also ask us who or what made you you and you've also answered that to an extent, but not just the dead. There's obviously the living and classically we're products often of, of our, as you mentioned, there, there's a DNA and there's the, the genetics, but there's the, the nurture element, not just the nature. So what about mm-hmm. who nurtured you or who who's influenced you significantly mm-hmm. to view what you're doing the way you, you describe that as doing this for your son? Not saying, but doing. Who, who has influenced you to get to get you to that point to have actually made such a a brave and cora- a courageous decision to move out of the conventional sort
0: of lane of work to do something that's invention based? Yeah, the obvious and the obvious answer is always your parents. Your parents are the critical influence in your life. And and I'm no different in that respect. And I'm very blessed with the parents that I had. I'll I'll say briefly, my mother is just wonderful. I'm very like my mother. She's a big character, very open, very happy to talk for as long as as you will give her the time to do so. Mm -hmm. Very motivating, very positive, very optimistic. Always pushed my brother and I to go out into the world and do whatever we wanted, never put limitations on us. A really positive influence and and talk to us and discuss things with us but it's probably right to discuss my father in greater depth given that as you know he died two weeks ago mm. and he died a couple of days after we were originally before we were originally mm. due to to record this podcast and that has been quite a reflective period making me think about him and mm-hmm. his life and his influence on me, and I have I have I've had to really kind of search my soul for my real feelings on it because my dad wasn't my dad wasn't a great man. He wasn't what you would expect me. He wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't a business tycoon. He he you know there were he was an ordinary guy, working class guy. Grew up in post war Newcastle in a very relative poverty and struggle when he was when he was younger educated to degree but but not a reader not somebody who is ever really embarked on an intellectual life but Mm. he was a good guy he was a really good guy Mm. and and i keep saying this to other people because as you get older you hear stories from other people about their parents and their fathers and very importantly he wasn't a bad guy there wasn't any badness in my dad. He was a really decent sort. From in his in his core, he was a good guy. Was always kind to us. Was never cruel to us. Was always there. Relatively stoic, you know, uh, uh, reliable. And and it's interesting because I think uh, I've, I've always had this this thing in me. This sort of I've got so many heroes. You know, I've all my bookshelves are filled with books of my, my heroes. And I've always looked to those heroes to give me the wisdom and the kind of the, 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 the quotes and the specific inspiring pieces of knowledge that are going to drive me and help me learn something. And I think much of that is because my dad was just a quiet man. And when I say about that about myself... You know, I can I can talk behind legs of a donkey, and I can write, I can I can write and write and write, and I can I can express myself very well through my words. And I realized that ultimately none of that matters. What I do is how I will be judged and how I'll be remembered. And that's how I look at him in in this time in my life. And he was a he wasn't a man of words, but he was a man of action. My dad provided for us his all, whole life. And he provided for us despite the difficulties and the complexities that he went through in his in his career. And just I, I think it's worth sort of giving you an example of what I mean by that because I grew up with him when I was very little. My dad started life as an engineer. He worked in a in an engineering factory. He was a thing called a capstan setter. So he he set up the machine, the, the lathe machines that would that would machine specific precision parts for. All kinds of things. I mean, one of the things he, he, he worked on was the London buses in, in the sixties, making some of the precision parts for the for the engines. So he was very proud of that, and it was a solid job, and it was a good job. It wasn't. It was. It was pretty skilled, but it wasn't kind of you know ex, extremely deeply skilled. But he loved it. And as the eighties emerged and technology took over and automation took over, he found himself redundant. So the thing that he loved, he found himself suddenly in his sort of early thirties without any skills again and in a difficult period you know you you remember what the early 80s was like in the UK you know the 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 beginning of the Thatcher years massive unemployment minor strikes especially in the northeast very difficult time and for the rest of his life my dad never really found his niche did a series of different jobs did whatever he could to get by and a lot of really dirty jobs a lot of really Shit jobs that he took to get by, to put bread and on the table and and a roof over our heads, and and he took me to work with him when he, from being very young. There were a number of jobs he did, but there was a period he started. He started a couple of his own businesses, and he actually did relatively well, except for the economic circumstances. the The recessions of the eighties killed two businesses he started. I won't go into the details about it, but. It really knocked him for six. It made him feel like he'd failed again. And so he lived with a lot of regret through his life of that. But he he would, he, these were physical jobs and sometimes he needed help and sometimes he would take me with him. And I'm talking about from the age of like 11, 12. Took my brother too. And we went and did some shit jobs with him. And there are certain things sort of seared into my memory about my old man. And one of them is we, for a while, my, my auntie worked for an estate agent and quite often the estate agents would if somebody had been evicted from a property or, or somebody had died and the, and the, 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 houses would require being cleared and, and everything got rid of for the, for the next tenant. And for a while, my dad did that. We went, we'd go and clear houses and, 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 mm. you know, the tragedy of, of sort of throwing people's lives in the back of a van and then taking it to escape and the, the, shelf and the dirt of it all, it was horrific. And I remember one time we had to do this job where we had to clear this house and this, the, the backstory was an an old man had lived there on his own no family and he died and he died in the bath in his house and laying there for, for weeks and uh-huh. they'd come and taken the old guy away and uh, yeah. me and my dad had to go the dad had a crappy old van and we had to clear his house and skip everything and when we got to this house my dad looked in the bathroom he'd been told that the guy died in the bath and when we got there as the, the as the ambulance men had taken the body away um, he'd sat in obviously in, in the hot water. Part of his scalp was still attached to the back of the bath, so my old man just turned to me and he said, "You go and start in the living room. Or I'll sort this out." And he closed the, closed the door, and and that bathroom wow. was, you know, sparkling clean afterwards. That's the kind of shit he had to do mm. to to look after us, and that's what he would do. Uh-huh. He would do what it took to make sure we were all right. Now that's that's action. That's something i learned the hard way how to be resilient how to do what needed to be done to get the job done mm-hmm. and i think at my core there is a you know when we're talking about that ocean thing there is a a conscientiousness in me that goes doesn't matter how dirty the job i have to do in my life it will never be that hard never be that difficult or mm-hmm. that awful so that influence he had on me was to prepare me for a life where there is nothing I won't do if I have to do it to survive, to do what I need to do. And I think that influences that's, that's to me, that's part of his legacy. You know, his legacy is to kind of create a resilient, independent, capable, um, adult in me. And I always, always love him for that. I mean, you
1: said, I was right at the start of this, that you're, everything you say, doesn't matter. The words you write, it'll be remembered for what you do. And you've just described your father as all about actions rather than about seeing. So I think your, his legacy
0: has had an impact. Definitely. He was, I should point out, he was a really funny guy as well. He joked and it mm-hmm. he wasn't, he wasn't as, all as bleak as I sound, but I use that as a, as a point of reference for the, you know, the ability to build a, a resilient individual in me. He also had great humor he could laugh it off he could see the absurdity mm. of life he was a real joker so there's a lot more about about the man mm-hmm. he, he wasn't just a, a grafter as we say in the northeast
1: <laughs> yeah and presumably a newcastle united fan
0: yeah 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 <laughs> that's it a tragedy of tragedy of being from the northeast <laughs> of england <laughs> yeah Nearly-
1: <laughs> well not not at the moment it's not
0: no, 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 but, the, but we never, the, the team have never had money behind them in the past. What, in the past, we never had money. We had Kevin Keegan, which will be absolutely lost on all of your American listeners. But It will indeed, the one, yeah. the one thing I'll say about Kevin Keegan as a football manager, I remember him saying this quote, I always loved this quote, he was all about creativity and flair. And he would say, I don't care if we lose seven goals as long as we score eight. And I kind of like that attitude in life. You know, you take mm-hmm. the take the good with the bad, as long as it's entertaining. Yeah,
1: keegan's almost cut from the same cloth as Bill shankley mm. Yeah, that sort of cat, that sort of character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the glorious one of the greatest seasons in Premiership history when he lost it on television around Alex Ferguson, got to him. That's right. Uh, That's the, right. Anyone that wants to be studied the psychology of competition. Alex Ferguson and Kevin Keegan's head-to-heads on national television. Wow, that was yeah. something to behold.
0: It's interesting. Um, you need sort of meet, meet a nemesis sometimes mm-hmm. in yeah. sport.
1: Well, it's, it's all a- great. But in, in all great stories, I mean, we, we've talked often in advertising to our clients, mm-hmm. um, every brand, you need to find the enemy mm. to create the hero uh, in yeah. every story. So back to your story. I'm going to come and talk about we've talked about who you are and 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 what made you you and i'm going to come and talk about what you are the actions you're saying it's your it's the acts you take and the things you do that you'll be remembered and the influence you'll have on your son and those around around your orbit so we will come and talk about why you're doing what you're doing but maybe we could just dive a bit more into understanding a bit more about some of the memories around because you are i mean we've I'm calling these series of interviews either the storyteller interviews, the difference makers or the domain experts. And I could say that you're a domain expert when it comes to creativity and also what you're doing with your invention. You're definitely making a difference. You're a difference maker by your invention. But you're also a, a, a classic storyteller. So you do sort of straddle all these categories. But I'd like you to maybe reflect on your earliest memories of when you realized that you were different to maybe other kids and you were more creative and where are you, if, just maybe around a recognition that you were more curious than some of the other kids around you.
0: Yeah, it's an, it's a, it is an interesting one. I, I don't really remember much from my childhood and I put that down to being mm-hmm. someone who is much of an observer. Mm-hmm. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't massively interactive socially. I had a few friends. I wasn't. I wasn't sort of at the center of any friend group. I was. I felt I was always on the periphery, observing what everyone else was doing. And I think that was very much me gaining an understanding of the world and and trying to kind of trying to find my place in it. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think
0: I found my place very much as a teenager because I, I I never had this academic capability. I I was always confused as to why i was just remembering information i never saw any context to what i was being asked to do and as i got into my teen years and uh, at school in the uk when you're about 15 you're asked to try and find some work experience and i asked if i could do something creative we had a design course at at school and, and i quite liked the design course but it was more tech drawing than than any sort of pure creative design and so they sent me. They sent me for a week's work experience in a nightclub in Newcastle called the Riverside, and I was in charge of pressing the button on, on the cop, on the copier for the photocopier for the flyers. This was their idea of okay. design,
1: design and, and creativity. <laughs> and
0: and, and this will give you a good idea of my mother. My mother was kind of furious at this because she felt it wasn't kind of wasn't good enough and so wasn't so it wasn't a reflection of what I meant by I wanted to do something in design. So she marched me up to the school she knocked on the, on the window of the, the receptionist and said, I'm, you know, I'm not happy about this. Somebody, somebody needs to do something. And the receptionist, she's a fearsome woman, my mother, and the receptionist clearly was sort of like, oh, my God, I need to do something about this. And so the receptionist, I think, either had a friend. It was either her friend's husband or her husband worked in a little advertising agency in Newcastle called Colbert Advertising. It was one of those network advertising Groups that did all of the the advertising for the local car dealership that was you know ubiqu- ubiquitous in each city around the country and things like that, and I ended up going for this work experience week. I was put in the team in the studio team and led by a guy called Eric Hall, and Eric Hall was a huge influence in my life. So suddenly I was sat in this advertising agency and, and given a brief to do an advert for Anglian Windows. I remember it very specifically. I was given trays of Letraset layout pads, and I was told to write an advert that explained the fact that Anglian windows saved you money because they were well insulated. Like my first brief, and I, and I was saying to I said, Eric, so what do I do? How do I solve this? What are the rules? I was like, well, just just come up with some ideas and see, see how, you, how you do it, how you express it. And I was like, okay, so... How do i come up with ideas well just think about this think about the problem think think about what the solution problem how can you express that in a simple way and he took the time and he, he really kind of talked to me and, and helped me and i remember doing this playing with letter set and having this little taking all the different sized pound signs and mm. and having them sort of fly out of an open window as if you were losing money because the window was open and not insulated and I just played with this idea, and he he said, "Great, yeah, really great." And I, and for the first time, I suddenly got this sense that something unique that could come from me that had no definition as an academic system or process could have value, and and actually could solve a problem that somebody else had. And all of this stuff started connecting. And I was like, "Oh my god, this is me. This is what I want to do. This is a thing. This is this is not you know." going and getting a job as an apprentice plasterer from a dad's pal, Bob, you know, this is something genuinely that I can, I I can enjoy. And I, I was willing to work. I was always willing to work at whatever I found, but it was finding something worth working at. So did that work experience asked after a week of doing this, if I could go back in summer and just be there. And Eric said, yeah, come back and spend, you know, three or four weeks in summer and you can just sit in the studio and work with the guys and watch what we do. And and he was amazing. And, and at the end of summer, I got very close to him. He, he really was, was one of those first mentors in your life, which you really need in life. You need to find somebody to, to, to be that positive influence, to be what Joseph Campbell calls the second father. Your father builds you up to be an independent person, but can only take you to, to that point where you have to find yourself. And you find yourself in something other than what you came from. So you see mm-hmm. something. You see something that references what you could be, not what you are. And then that influences the Obi Wan character. It's all of that kind of stuff in mythology. But that second father figure, Eric, suddenly became like that. It's like, right, this guy has a life and a career and a character, and I can emulate that, and I can work to be something of that nature. And he, and and literally within weeks of me finishing that work experience, he he emigrated to Australia. So he he had the classic a classic dr- drawing board a draftsman's drawing board with a, you'll know the poised angle lamp. And, and oh, he, yeah. uh-huh. he, he couldn't take this to Australia with him. It was obviously, there was a certain amount of shipping. So he asked me if I wanted it. And I said, of course I do. So my dad and I collected that, brought that back. It sat in my bedroom. And I always felt that was a, it was like a symbolic thing that he gave me. I had to use this now. I had to use this lamp to, to project onto what I was designing on this, th- this beautiful old angle-poised drawing board. And so that saw me through university. And then because of that, I, I, I found the, the course in advertising I wanted to do and just pursued it relentlessly. So I was very lucky that I, I found an opportunity and I found a person to inspire me and educate me and, and show me a pathway in life that was absolutely suited to me. So a little bit of serendipity goes a long way in life. I will say though, my mom, my, my mom, also your mother. my mom, my mom was a, a huge influence, but she does, she does remind me that when I was about, when I was about 11 or 12, I had a, an English assignment and it was to write a story in a, in a unique way, in a different way than just a normal story. And I constructed a story. It was just, a, it was a short story. It was on one page. And the story I constructed was made up of the strap lines from all of the TV ads that were currently on television at the time. So obviously the advertising thing was... A subliminal... Subliminally, un- it influenced me. And I was very influenced by... It. I remember being at school and seeing one of those first Nike posters in the gym hall. Mm-hmm. and Just, you know, that, just do it. And it was, yeah. the, it was the, the the classic American footballer who, you know, hand against the wall, just worked his ass off just one, and it was inspirational so there were there were other influences in there but mm.
1: okay so that that's yes yeah, so that's really interesting it's you mentioned the ocean as the personality sort of characteristics whatever however subliminal these things that led you to desire have some inkling that design was where you wanted to go, and as you say, serendipity kicked in, but often as i, I like to say, I think we engineer serendipity or People around us engineer serendipity, and I think your mother's persistence and grit and determination to see you outside of a, not in a nightclub, Mm -hmm. uh, but somewhere more creative, was engineering serendipity. But also, it is about being prepared to go down the road less traveled, and sometimes it takes an element of fearlessness and a confidence in yourself. Now, when you were a kid, were you a rebel at school? Did you fit in, or did you want to go down your own path?
0: I was, I was, I was a good boy. <laughs> I don't think, I wouldn't say I was rebellious at all. Yeah. I did play. I remember we, my my best friend and I, we just didn't have any interest in it at all. We'd play truant a lot and we'd spend a lot of time just <laughs> running out of the back gates of the school, jumping on the bus and going to the local mall, which I'm sure is probably, that's probably universal in America as well as the UK. So but but that was it. I mean, I, was, I wasn't naughty. I wasn't challenging. I was uh, I was I was a relatively nice kid. I think there, there there is something rebellious in me. There is something that's, but it's not a rebel. It's not that sort of rebelliousness for the sake of rebelling. There's something mm-hmm. in me that is curious about whether or not I can simplify or do something a different way and potentially a better way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A better way, yeah. Uh-huh. There's, there's so
1: there a, is a non there is a nonconformist element in you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, If I'm told if I'm told this is the way we do things, I like to question that before I make a decision in saying that that's okay. that's the way I'm going to do it as well.
1: You mentioned early on the influence of the films and the superheroes in that, you know, Superman. And you mentioned Joseph Campbell. And I was going to ask you about aside from your creativity, which most people that know you would describe you as a, a very creatively driven being what would you say your natural superpowers are? Other people might say talents or gifts, but...
0: Yeah, I always think it's hard to understand yourself against other people because your lived experiences of your own feelings and your, your own understanding of the world, and you, you can never truly understand how somebody else is experiencing that. But I do think I'm empathetic. I do think I can put myself in other people's shoes more so perhaps than some people can. So... That maybe gives me some sort of capacity to understand what you might need from a situation or a product or a service mm. or an invention and, and sort of experience life from the, from the viewpoint of somebody utilizing or coming into contact with the thing that I do or put into the world. And therefore I have a, probably a good sense of evaluation of whether there is value itself in that thing that I've put into the world. So there's I think I think empathy is, is a I it, I think it's a great quality in people. I actually know people who do not have empathy and I think it's a it's a, it's a tragedy in people's lives if they don't have it.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's a great card set I keep by my computer. There's an agency in New York called Sub Rosa founded by a guy called Michael Ventura, and I interviewed him, one of the first guests, and he wrote he a book called um, Applied Empathy, and he's got this little card set called Questions and Empathy, Provocation for Applied Empathy. It. It's really good.
0: I listened to the podcast. I remember you telling me about him. He he's seemed really cool.
1: Lovely guy. Yeah, real a real star. So I, I agree with you, and I think it is a quality that all great creative people that I've worked with tend to, tend to have. But you did say that it's hard to describe well, maybe how other people perceive you. But I will ask you that in terms of, in relation to what do people compliment you for? Because I think that then reflects what they think of you.
0: Well, again, I come back to this, this stuff of my father. People do, people do and are aware that I am conscientious, that I work hard. And I think as a, as, as a creative I don't really like the word creative, but as a creative person that often can be perceived as, okay, they're creative, they're, you know, they, they like to do things on their time when they're ready, when they want to, and they're a little bit difficult and you not know, always dependable. But I think that was that was the thing that got me through those early years. If I, If I have been relatively successful in that world, it's because, it's not because of raw talent, it's because I worked at it. I was mm-hmm. always first one in, always last one out. I would work long hours and enjoyed the work as well. So that, that that made it easier. But I think that conscientiousness and being dependable as a result of that always made me very popular in in the agencies I worked in, certainly in the creative departments. If mm-hmm. if a client service person took a brief to the traffic manager, they would ask if I was free to work on it.
1: And not Alex. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> your partner when you <laughs> alex- describe yourself and i think about alex so uh, you, you can be sort of chalk and cheese
0: yeah yeah that that did work very well and alex alex bless him is one of the most cr- truly creative is the wrong word alex is artistic alex is mm, incredible yeah. at pure expression pure abstraction and actually now lives as an artist musician in amsterdam where he should have been all along rather than in the commercial world because it, it uh, Alex, Alex clashed with the idea of having to having to corrupt ideas for commercial gain, and I appreciate that with him, It's was who, who who he was. But the the ability for us to bounce ideas off each other was it was always it was a, a wonderful time in in my life working with with Alex Payton, and in his art, Alex's art is it's it's unbelievably good. Now he is he is I don't know if you have seen the. His his paintings recently. No, he stu- He probably took up painting. He's always done a bit of painting, but he took it up really professionally about ten years ago. And his his personal painting style it's Picasso esque. It's it's utterly phenomenal. He he lives a relatively modest life in Amsterdam, but I would like someone like Charles Sachi to see Alex's work and really see the the, the quality of it now because. I, I genuinely think he could be one of the, could be one of the world's most famous artists over the course of the next decade. He's, he's that good I'll Check in my out. opinion.
1: Put a link, put a link to it in the show notes mm-hmm. so people can see it. I mean, you've talked about the nature and the characteristics of being a creative and you're now working pretty much focused on being an inventor with a desire to bring this product to life that you can come and talk about. Yeah. But like, all creative people, inventors, innovators. Whether it's an empty pad of paper or whether it's a problem that you're solving, you're entering into the unknown and you must have to confront fragility and doubt that often goes with the territory that you, your domain. How do you deal with that?
0: I ask experts. The simple answer to your question is I ask experts. Because I am a bit of a polymath. I know, I know a lot about a lot, but not everything. So, uh-huh. so to give you a good example of where that comes in handy, and again, it, it, it's all connected, all of this stuff, the, the confidence that I've developed, that extroversion that I've developed through having to be extrovert because I've had to learn to present, I've had to learn to, kind of exp, to sell my ideas. When I started inventing, so perhaps it's worth explaining what my invention is at this point. Yeah, because I it, think the time it,
1: is now to say, let's talk about helps. your invention.
0: So I've been a, an asthmatic my whole life. I've carried a, a what's called a PMDI, a, a pressurized multi-dose inhaler. People will be very familiar with those. Yeah, exactly. have yep. seen them in films. The vast majority of, of people with asthma will carry them regularly and have done most of their lives. It's It's a wonderful piece of technology, but it's also, it comes with a certain amount of issues. One being convenience, they're relatively big and bulky and and you usually only get one. So you have to remember it. You can't forget that mm. inhaler. And also there's a stigma attached to taking medical devices. The kids with asthma always get sort of, you know, there's a, there's a stigma. They feel it. Even, even if it's not mentioned, y- you feel it. So I always wanted as an asthmatic to have something more discreet, more simple, more convenient that I could carry around with me easily. And that sort of came to a head about I think it was about eight nine years ago now and i was in my full scottish kilt suit at an award ceremony and i only had the sporran which is the little pocket in the front of the kilt and my inhaler wouldn't fit into it so i went to this award ceremony without my inhaler i left it in the hotel room and that whole night i had that paranoia that you have as an asthmatic when you don't have your inhaler i better not dance in case i get wheezy yeah and I thought, right, I need to do something about this. So, anyway, I'd had some thoughts about there was a new generation of inhalers that weren't pressurized wet mists that were milled as dry powders, very fine, small amounts of dry powders. And any of your listeners who, who are asthmatic will probably have moved on to the new generation of dry powder inhalers. They're still bulky, they're still not as convenient to carry, and they still have the stigma attached. So I decided to design my own single-dose device. And because I saw this fine-dry powder, I had this idea in relation to filters, where I thought, if you have a filter material, a mask, for instance, and you breathe in, it captures the particles on the filter material. And I mm-hmm. thought, if I preloaded the filter material with that powder, and then somebody inhaled from the other side, you could lift the particles off the powder and into the airway. And I thought, okay, mm-hmm. that's an interesting mm-hmm concept. And then I started playing with sort of with business cards and the flexibility of business cards and taking two business cards together and squeezing them and forming this tunnel in between. I thought if I put a piece of filter material between that tunnel, could I load it and then close it and have this flat business card that then if you took it with you and you had an asthma attack, you squeeze it, it opens, you inhale, it lifts the powder off and then it goes into your lungs and then you dispose it. All of these things started playing around in my head. And and I, I designed it. I drew it all up. I kind of made a little animation of the concept and the idea. And then, and then I thought, I know nothing about this world. I know nothing about pharmacology. I know nothing about the milling of drive-out of drugs. Mm. I know nothing about respiratory physics. I know nothing about the biology of the, the, the trachea and the, and the lower and deeper lung. Um, I know nothing about the production of medical devices. <laughs> there was so little that I knew. But I thought, I've got a good idea. Hmm. So I sort of went online, scoured the, the internet looking for where do respiratory inhaler experts converge? And I found, I found two things. I found that there were a couple of really important conferences that they all went to. And I found out that there were a few key people in that industry who were very respected as inhaler designers. One guy called David Harris, who was an inhaler designer specifically, and another guy called Hartwig Steckel, who, one
1: of the the puff ones. Yeah, yours, yeah.
0: Yes. Yes. but also had designed a multitude of different devices as well. So real expert in device design. And then another another guy, really cool guy called Hartwig Steckel. And Hartwig was one of the leading experts on the development of dry powder drugs and had written lots of scientific papers. So I, I pinpointed these two people. I went to a, a respiratory conference in Istanbul and targeted Hartwig and kind of went up to him and I, I said, hi, you don't know me, but I've come up with this idea and I really need to understand whether or not there is any viability in it. And I need to ask mm-hmm. somebody like you to know that. Talk to him, showed him, the, showed him the concept, waiting for him to say, you're having a lash, right? This is ridiculous. You're a joke. What do you know about this? But actually mm-hmm. that didn't happen. He said, yep. Yeah yeah, there's, there's some logic and some sense in your concept and your, there are a few things you'd have to do morphology of the powders and making sure that they were kind of viable to sit into a membrane and the matrix. And so he got thinking about it and he was very encouraging and very positive and very helpful. And then I went to meet this other guy, David Harris, who's a great guy who's become a sort of a a friend and a mentor of mine in, in Cambridge, because he worked in the life sciences industry in Cambridge and I showed him the device again, waiting for, waiting for look, sunshine, you know, you don't know a thing about respiratory physics. This is why this won't work. Mm. And David went, David went. Hmm, okay, this, this, yeah, there's merit in this. This is worth pursuing. So, given that I had these two sides of wow. the industry—the kind uh-huh. of the, the 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 actual device itself and the the pharmacology—I then went to uh, and and again serendipity. Turns out that the biggest respiratory conference in the world has its yearly event in edinburgh where i lived mm-hmm. so in every dis- year every year the entire respiratory industry comes to edinburgh for a, for a conference wow. called ddl drug delivery to the Lungs. Mm-hmm. so <laughs> I'm like okay this is so the universe is telling me that this, this is worth pursuing so i went to ddl and again did some ch- you know i've become good at networking become smart at understanding people and empathizing with with people and seeing where the kind of the 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 key people in any industry are So I found an amazing lady called Helen Muirhead, and Helen is, Helen used to work at GSK, and Helen is one of the few people in the world who has taken two of the biggest multi-billion dollar respiratory inhalers to market in her time at GSK. And serendipitously, she and her husband, Gordon Muirhead, who was also one of the vice presidents of new drugs at uh, GSK, had just left and started their own consultancy, and I saw pleaded with them to help me and they they liked I think they liked me and they kind of sort of liked my idea. And so at that point, everything started to converge. Lisa, my business partner came on board with me. Lisa's phenomenal. Lisa is like the, the commercial, the commercial brain to my creative brain. And we have a, 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 a magical partnership. She's, she's, she's incredible. And with Helen and Gordon behind us working with us the, this consulting team, we have spent the last four or five years developing this inhaler to the point at which we now have a sort of a working, a working mechanism and we're just moving to the stage now where we're going to take it to a, a fully working commercial prototype. And no one is more surprised than me, than the, the, this thing that was just a, a thought in my head is now a physical entity with a multitude of people, a multitude of companies working on it and, and helping with it and whose lives have been influenced by it. And we are, still, we are still a way away from it being in market because it takes about 11 years standard to get a, a, a medical device to market. But we are only a couple of years away from that, probably now two or three years away and we're making great progress. And the main thing is the device is working. We found a way to, to create that, what we call a dispersion engine for the dry powder drugs through using filtration. And it's
1: still the way that you imagined it? No,
0: it's it's so much better. Have I shown you it? No. No. I I can show you it. And obviously to anyone listening, it won't make a great deal of sense. Yeah. But as you can, that's it there. You can see it's a flat business card size, Uh credit card size, and it's in foil pouch. The way you would, when you used to get uh, collector's cards as kids and they came in Mm -hmm. a foil pouch, it's kind of like the size of that. So Mm -hmm. I just... Peel, the, peel it out of its foil pouch. That's the uh-huh. device flat. And all I do is squeeze it, and it pops into the shape, a little sort of shape of a... Oh, wow. Um, it's kind of... its what We call it trumpet. It's sort of a trumpet shape. Yeah. Um, and the front, this is just a, this is just a simple demonstrator uh-huh. at the minute. It's not a fully, fully functioning thing, but you can see there's a tiny hole. Yes. And that hole uh-huh. has, a, has a membrane, and in, in the matrix of that membrane is stored the dry powder drug. Uh-huh. So all I do to take my drugs is just inhale. The air goes through the back over the membrane. There's a pressure created at the back over the membrane, lifts the drug and it naturally flows into my lungs through the, through the actual device. Wow. And one of the beauties of of the mouthpiece as well, because of that sort of clever origami in building it is it's, it's around the same sort of shape and dimension as, as my PMDI. So there's a familiarity to the end user. So it's, it's it's very real and and most importantly it fits in a kilt it fits in my kilt in a spawn <laughs> so the market that's probably one of the limit one of the smaller markets but a, a, a critical market for me oh, Yeah. um wow. so incredible we've, so we've come quite a long way with that and, and again I, I keep coming back to my dad hard work mm-hmm. like the idea bit that was the easy thing trying to get mm-hmm. i've i've had jobs where i've I spent about a year and a half scouring the world for membrane materials that would be viable to hold powders at a certain, mm-hmm. a certain size. Tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed relentlessly until we got to the point where we found something that actually kind of worked. So all of that hard work, And um, this, is, this is the interesting thing that I think is, um, like when I define myself now and I go, well, well who are you? Mm-hmm. I, was, I was never an execution guy. I used to like doing the ideas because the ideas are fun. You sit at your desk, come up with the ideas, play around with that. But execution, Elon Musk always says this. It's sort of, you know, the the hard work is in the manufacturing. Trying to manufacture a product in the real world, not a digital product. Digital products are relatively straightforward. In the real world, trying to make something, trying to find materials that are medical grade and and recyclable, trying to find at, at, at microscopic levels, materials that can interact with each other in the correct way that aren't influenced by things like electrostatics or and 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 materials that are hydrophilic not hydrophobic making something simple is one of the hardest Mm. things you can you can ever do and it takes that kind of commitment and that conscientiousness that to to just relentlessly keep going with it and i said so that so that's in short that's what i've been doing since i since i became an inventor You posted, I think,
1: something on LinkedIn about, I think it was a George Bernard Shaw quote
0: Mm
1: -hmm. about the unreasonable man, where Bernard Shaw said, the unreasonable man adapts himself to the world. Uh, Sorry, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Mm -hmm. I think this is clearly an example of you being unreasonable and in terms of you going back to your description about who you are, you use that ocean personality where it's mm-hmm. about agreeableness mm-hmm. but you've got a little bit of your mother i think in you where <laughs> you're going i'm not i'm not accepting the status quo yeah. I'm going to disrupt I'm going to be disagreeable yeah and that takes that's 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 also persistence it's also self belief and and courage to do that how have you i mean I, Many people would have given up to get, yeah, way before getting to this stage. What's kept you going?
0: Well, again, it's, that, it's, it's my old man, isn't it? You don't give up. Mm-hmm. You've got a job to do, get it done. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost as simple as that. I don't give up because I've been trained not to give up. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's the simple reason. And, and also, I, I, I don't want to, and I don't, think I, I don't think I have to. Because what I've learned throughout my life is that there are very few problems that are Unresolvable, and that that the, the the superpower thing is that you can think your way out of a problem. Where human as, as human beings, our brain functions to resolve problems and find answers to, yeah. to questions. I mean,
1: to go back to, to Bernard Shaw, he did also say that imagination is the sort of the a critical component to sort of invention mm-hmm. and and cre- the creative process. So I suppose it is all wrapped up there with your curiosity as well and all those all those characteristics
0: yeah i think um, i think it is the, the other thing about that word unreasonable though is that it's it sounds like it sounds like it doesn't make you someone who you'd want to be around mm. an unreasonable yeah. person but i think there's a way to be unreasonable and also be inclusive collaborative mm. approachable and fun uh, it, it's, Empath- it's empathetically unreasonable. Empathetically, there's a, there's a whole, that's a, that's a psychological trait, that's a character type. Um, there's a
1: book to be written on that. I think, um, that, yeah. Also, in terms of, how, I mean, you've persisted, you're getting close, and you say it's, it's a journey to getting a, a product, a medical product to market. I like talking about failures more than success, because I don't really know where success begins and ends, really. Have there been any sort of successful failures
0: on this journey? Yeah, yes, because well, I I sort of go back to I always love that like the old Kipling poem if where he says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same. The mm-hmm. the point of all of this is is my intent and the action I'm taking based on my intent. This mm-hmm. this may fail. This may never go to market. This something might happen. Somebody might somebody might come and say, Oh no, I had this idea. Ages ago, and uh, ultimately, I sort of don't think about it. And and the reason I don't think about it is because I believe in this this concept of emergence. And uh-huh. the concept of emergence is related to sort of systems theory and in, in biology. Again, I've I've read some weird stuff in my life, but there's a guy called Ludwig von Bertalanffy, and he was one of the, the sort of the godfathers of biological systems theory from the turn of the century. And he he created this concept called emergence. And the best way to explain emergence is that if I showed you, if you didn't know anything, if you had no knowledge and I showed you an ant, and I said to you, what is that ant capable of? The last thing you would you would say is an anthill. So yeah. so it's only by the emergent properties of ants that anthills come about. So and and the truth the truth, that is the truth of all things that emerge in life. I mean, and, and I come back to what you asked about who, who am I? I am an emergent system. I am something that has come about as a result of all the variables that could have happened over the course of my life to be who I am now. And there are multiple other means that I could have been as a result of those variables. So I am an emergent property. This inhaler is an emergent property. The concept is an emergent property of what happened in my brain, but the actual product is an emergent property of the people who've worked on it, the serendipitous luck I've had in finding the correct materials, the individual influence that other people have had from a design perspective, from a pharmacology perspective, from a physics perspective. So it is emerging. It's not going to see, succeed or fail, it's going to continue to emerge. And even when it's in market, it will have emerged into market because of other factors that I still don't have any control of over. So. I'm very aware now in my life that fear of failure is not something I need to have, not because it might fail, but because failure isn't really a thing. It's just, it's just there are situations that will emerge, and some of those situations will be good and some will be bad, but there will always be something else to move on to from those situations. So, and I think this is probably something that's quite critical for anybody the inventor innovator entrepreneur to realize is that you, there is no end there is no end game there is just the journey and if you start the journey and you have the right intent at the outset of the journey and you you can control certain things for instance if you go out and get and and, and work with people who are not experts in their field chances are the thing that you're trying to make emerge want to merge at its best if you're not open to adaptation chances are things won't emerge. There are certain ways in which you can act to give the best possible chance to whatever it is you're trying to achieve to, to succeed. But the idea that you have complete control over that is mm-hmm. illusory.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's very interesting that you, you describe that because I think a lot of things, I, I was on a call the other day with a, a p- upcoming guest And we were talking about the binary nature of life, you know, often, you know, belief, non-belief, you know, success, failure, as if they're they're, they're opposites. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet emergence is much more of a fluid system. Yeah. And if we start, if we were, I was going to talk to you about what we have to do to change the mindset of a generation of kids that are going to be growing up in an age of AI. And how we start to make them think more creatively, and I think when you talk about emergence, it feels like it's a rich territory that should be—it it should be core to the education of children—to think not in terms of oh, you've got to pass or you're going to fail, you've got to succeed or you've got to fail, and that there's the—but it's much more you're. As you said, you're you're on a journey, mm-hmm. and you've got to start to see events as opportunities, yeah. as learning. And I think that's really interesting, particularly. And we talked before we got started the podcast about AI. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a, a son. Yeah. You're as you said, you're guiding him. What I mean, I mean, I'm not asking any specific there, but have you got any reflections on what we have to do? based on your learnings on this mm-hmm. journey about mm-hmm. how we should be thinking about education.
0: Absolutely. And
1: AI. It's
0: yeah, I, I, I have, and I've thought about it. I have thought about it a lot and I've thought about how, how I make sure I'm a positive influence on him and I don't sort of, I don't end up being dismissive of the existing systems because mm-hmm. as I'm aware, something will emerge out of the way things are. And there isn't. We don't really have full control over it. People will have ideas, and people have had ideas about a better education system. But actually, the reality is that there's a generation going through it at the moment who are looking at it and going. I was talking to my son about this the other day. The system, chat GPT system.
1: GPT, Yeah.
0: Yeah. It passed. It passed an MBA at one of the one of the better universities, and so it's like, well, okay. Why? Why do humans need to passion if the if the uh, the AI can do it? Mm. But the thing that I've I've tried to I've tried to help him understand, and he'll probably listen to this, so it's, it's it's worth reiterate. There are two things I think are very important for him to learn, and that is psychology and philosophy, because psychology will tell him about the operating system within himself, and philosophy will help him work out what to do with it. <laughs> so I talked to him a lot about the way the brain works, about the way different people have different personalities and why they have different personalities, and I tried to influence him the best I can on where to look for different philosophies on life so that he 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 doesn't have any preset idea of what he should be thinking, but he 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 takes all these other influences and then goes, "Okay, from that I can I can get some kind of sense of who I might be as an individual and therefore what my purpose in life is and therefore find my, my pathway and my, my you know, Campbell again, follow, follow my bliss as a result of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to help him do that. But at the same time, there is another lesson which is critical to the school and, the, and what he's gone through at the moment. Cause he, he actually strangely sat his, his first mock exam for philosophy today. So, The thing that I try to explain is that that the outcome of the exams is not important. The the A's, the B's, the the nature of that. What is important that he's been given the opportunity to test his commitment Mm -hmm. and his ability to be conscientious. Because if he proves to himself that he can work hard on something that he doesn't really want to do, imagine how successful he'll be when he works hard at something that he does want to do. So the lesson I'm trying to Get across to him is that if he builds that discipline in himself at this stage in his life, and it's true of all kids, build that discipline as early as you can, and it will serve you well, because that's the discipline my old man built in me. I we have to, to say yeah. we have to get up, we have to go to work because if we don't you know we don't eat tonight, or I can't pay the rent. So it's those core underlying things that are critical in terms of a, a child's education. So I try to be the best influence I can with him on that, but then it's, I'm also me. So I also kind of, I also kind of like, he'll say, what's the point of this? And I'll go, "Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, so I'm a difficult father.
1: You wrote a lovely piece when you were turned 50, uh, your 50 your fifty lessons since mm-hmm. turning 50. Um, I'm going to ask you, since turning 50,
0: what have you learned but it's a difficult one because that was that was six months ago and I've spent the last six months with the with the imminence of, of death surrounding my father and being there to care for him during that period. You know, the importance of the importance of family. The import the importance of realizing that life gives you what you need. You don't always realize that until later. But mm-hmm. I've often you know, I've often probably I think I feel it doesn't make me a, a, a good son in many ways. But over the over the years, I've thought dad would be better if he was like that. Dad would be better if he was like that. And oh, I wish I had a dad like somebody else. And the reality mm-hmm. is, I had exactly the dad that was right for me. And mm-hmm. so that is a, that has been a a really critical lesson in life. And I, and I also hope that that lesson is that that other people sort of learn that in life as well. I'm sure I'm sure you're the same. You you go am I. Am I a good dad? Am I a good partner? Am I, you know, am I doing the right thing for the people I care about? And it's it's for them to work that out later on.
1: You mentioned earlier on talking to the dead that Epictetus quote. I think there are two people. I think may be dead people that may have been influenced on your life. Given that you've talked about the importance of psychology and philosophy, but also your design is at your core of your being. Mm-hmm. If you could have had dinner with Milton Glaser, a great designer, and or, and or Alan Watts, great philosopher, what would you have asked them in terms of speaking to the dead?
0: What would you want to discuss or ask? Do you know, I think that there's probably a thousand one sort of deep, deep philosophical questions to ask both, but I would want to know what they found funny. Mm -hmm. Because I think the critical thing to understanding a person is to seeing Mm -hmm. what level of sophistication their sense of humor is at. Because humor tells Mm -hmm. you everything. Humor is our coping mechanism in life for the complex suffering of existence. So I would want to just sit and laugh with them. I'd want to see what absurdities they had experienced, what funny situations they'd been in, because that would tell you so much about the, the, the human being because both of those people, Alan, I I love Alan Watts. The greatest thing I've ever, the greatest truth I've ever heard anybody speak is from Alan Watts when he said, "You are the universe experiencing itself." Mm-hmm. That's utterly profound. And then, and then Milton Blazer is just on a on a on a, on a, on a design front, is as pure and kind of authentic and a, a, an aesthetic artist as 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 ever there has been and, and uh, as you know i very luckily met him in new york many years ago and managed to kind of interview him for a, one of the industry magazines in the uk and he was just inspiring he was like like a like a jedi master i was, I was overwhelmed by kind of my own incompetence in comparison as, 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 <laughs> as, as i spoke to him but yeah, I'd I'd love to sit down with people like that. Maybe maybe the three of them. Maybe add k- Kevin Keegan into the mix.
1: <laughs> well, it might be interesting. Might be a little. I'll, I'll challenge you to go away and go to Chat GPT and ask a Chat GPT to get Alan Watts to tell you a joke. Great idea. And see see what it, see what it turns out. It'll oh. be the real test of it.
0: Oh, that's going to send me down a rabbit hole this evening, isn't
1: it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. I'm going to be doing it as well, so we'll have to follow up on that one by uh, by chat. Anyway, I know it's getting late there for you. I'm going to just ask you a few more questions. Okay. Um, there is one other person, actually, talking about talking to the dead, someone that we both encountered, Charlie Robertson, who sadly passed too early in mm-hmm. his life mm-hmm. uh, a few years back. Uh, one of the great advertising planners and thinkers um, that the industry has ever created, and, and Scotland. What was his impact on you when you cross paths?
0: Well, well, he impacted me a number of times over the course of my life. I think he was, a. Uh, wouldn't say Charlie and I were, were very close, but sometimes you have somebody who you can turn to in specific times when you need them and they're there for you. And Charlie was sort of that, mm-hmm. for, that for me. I first met him when I when I was a, a young creative at the Leap Agency. I think same time you were there, and uh-huh. the thing I remember most about him at the time was that we were trying to do some really radical work, very very challenging in in the in the you know youth ad, youth advertising, soft drink advertising. We were trying to break some new boundaries and and, and change the sort of parameters of what was acceptable within that. And there were an awful lot of people around that who were very nervous and very anxious and very cautious who were trying to, I guess, put the brakes a little bit on what we were trying to achieve. And Charlie was sort of sitting back with his arms folded, very relaxed, going, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing at the edges. So Charlie sitting with that confidence as the senior man in the room allowed everybody else to look at him from the agency and everybody and the client side and they saw Charlie's confidence and his lack of his fearlessness around that. And that gave everybody the freedom and the confidence to, to actually do something relatively radical. So I always remember that I, it wasn't what he said. It was, it was his, his, uh, his character in that respect that was, was critical. But many years later, there was a few occasions, but, but there was one occasion where I, I made, a, I made a, a crazy mistake in a client meeting. Just as I transferred from advertising to digital, I said mm-hmm. something on a conference call, which was I misjudged who I was talking to and what we were talking about because other people had, had influenced me in such a way that I was, I was sort of ready for a fight that wasn't the wasn't fight. And it was, it was one of those mm-hmm. weird situations you find yourself in. I said something and somebody took offense on the client side and I thought, oh my God, that's it. I've literally just lost the biggest account for this agency by saying something I shouldn't have, have said because I, I was misinformed about something. And I was I was so I was so worried. I thought I'm going to be, I, I did not long join the company and I thought oh, this is going to be my first big sort of, yeah, you know, he's sacked. And I thought, what do I do? All right, I call Charlie. So I said to Charlie, oh my God, here's what happened. Charlie, what do I do? And he said, okay, first thing, did you mean to mess up? I was like, "No." He said, "Did you have the right intentions when you went into the the conversation?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, don't apologize." He said, "Only apologize when you've actually done something that you that you intended to upset." He said, "Otherwise, shut up, get on with it, forget about it." I was like, "Okay," and and I did, and turns out everybody else did because I think they'd had the same reason, realizing realization yeah. that. It was just a mistake. So that 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 sort of lesson—never apologize for something that wasn't
1: malicious—and
0: mm-hmm. have a sort of belief in your convictions when your intentions are right was was important. But also, when I quit, when I quit everything to become an inventor, started you know consulting and starting the inhaler business and, and becoming an inventor. I talked him through the strategy. I talked him through what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, my process, everything in the same way he did in that first instance he just sat back and he listened and he just said go and do it mm-hmm. he never criticized anything he never said no don't do that bit of that a little bit more of that a little bit less of that they just said go and do it and mm-hmm. it was it was he knew what i needed when i needed it so he was a a, a great great guy
1: great mentor you're st- Continuing to invent, you're not, you're not <laughs> satisfied with one hailer. You've also got an idea
0: yeah.
1: around environment, sustainability, power, uh,
0: using kelp.
1: Could you, without going too far, maybe if you, don't, if you want to share, it okay. without giving anything too much away?
0: No, 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 that's absolutely fine. Uh, yeah, I, I have this, yeah, I have an abundance of conscientiousness. That's my problem. So... The second invention, and this is much earlier stage than the, the inhaler, it's called KELP Systems. So it is a. KELP stands for, it's an acronym, it stands for Kinetic Energy Leverage Power. So it is a hydrokinetic energy generation system. It's a sequence of submarine impellers that are designed to harness the natural kinetic energy in moving water. And it began life as a concept for t- as, as a tidal energy turbine effectively to sit within the kind of the, the strong currents that we, we see moving around the ocean. But latterly, we've, we've pivoted more to run of river hydro energy because the nature of the system itself, it's, it's based on biomimicry of kelp. Um, because kelp, mm-hmm. rather than resisting the movement of water, absorbs the energy in the water. And so it, it's, not, it's not like a, a, a kelp. It, it really is nothing mm-hmm. like that. It's more the, the the fluid nature of the ability for, for the, the system to absorb water. So we've just, I started this a couple of years ago. I had a quiet winter, and so I kind of just did the work. Similar Similar process, didn't know what I was doing. Had this core idea, which was in contrast to what the existing systems were. Took it to some engineers that I knew, got some validation. But we've just finished with... Scottish Enterprise, which is the economic grant funding body in Scotland, gave us some money last year to do a, a feasibility study evaluation on the technology, and it's, it's looking really, really good. So we've just finished that, and the next step later this year will be to start fundraising around that, because trying to get a prototype energy turbine system mm-hmm. into the water is, is not going to be cheap. But we've got some provenance that it's going to be very, very sustainable. Very low carbon footprint, very good energy efficiency, and will help to provide energy around the world in, in both remote locations for to attach to microgrids, but also in larger larger cities and towns which have rivers running through them, and, and a multitude of other applications. So that's really exciting, and again, it's part of that that invention philosophy that I have, that which comes from good old Buckminster Fuller. Who said we have mm, we have yeah. four four things we have to get right for the sustainability of humanity, health, environment, energy, and interstellar space travel. So I'm I'm playing with I'm doing well with health with health, and I'm working on the energy crisis. And uh, if I, if I do find any more time in the future, I'll I'll try and try and resolve the the environment issue, and then get everyone to space. Although my, my, my old hero Elon yeah. Musk is doing very well with that on his own.
1: He is indeed. I mean, that's just great inspiration for any person that's maybe working in advertising. I know mean, a lot of people are feeling that their creativity is blunted by the nature of the industry today. Mm-hmm. So I think your words, if they're heard by enough people, should be impetus for people to go out there and believe in their own ideas and start inventing. I hope so. Um, what, I mean, if, aside from that, what serendipitous impact would you like this podcast
0: interview to have? I really love the idea that I can kind of, I can inspire people. I don't want to, my ego doesn't need that. I'm old enough to get over the ego stuff. I hope, I hope that people who are in creative industries who are using their skills to take products to market effectively and get paid to take products to market can realize that they can develop, use the same skills to develop their own products and services and through that conscientiousness and actually asking for expert help, they can actually get their own products and markets products and services to market themselves and start to benefit in a way that isn 't just a day 's pay for a day 's work mm-hmm. and i 'm not massively commercially focused with what I do, but I do think that there is a i 'm a capitalist in as much as the more capital you can create, the more you can reinvest that in in making things better so it's very hard to do that as a creative in a design agency an ad agency in-house in a client business you're never really gonna you're gonna be living relatively hand to mouth but if you design and develop your own products and services you can create capital from that and you can use that capital to actually improve more and more and i've always felt that creative people never really kind of get that that training that help this the vast majority of creative people are relatively risk averse that means they like being creative but they also want to make sure the bills are paid and they want to make sure that they're comfortable in an environment where they can be creative so i think people need to realize you can push yourself out of that comfort zone and actually kind of do for yourself what you're doing for other people
1: i mean i think you're having I think you're having and are going to have a huge impact on the world with your, both your inventions. And being that unreasonable empath, empathetic, unreasonable man, I've got an idea for you. And I think what you should do when you do generate revenues and mm-hmm. profits from these inventions, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure will come. I think what you need to do is create an incubator called Emergence to bring on board creators who want to be inventors. Great idea. To harness these skills, the skills that you have had so well honed and trained with the discipline and, and that you've got that we know exists in plentiful supply within the creative departments of the world. Yeah. yet are not being put to purposeful projects. Yeah. Uh, at the scale we need and if we need scale and speed of change to help us f- avoid the need for interstellar space travel mm-hmm. and multiplanetary life. We do need new solutions to the problems that we're facing. And I mm-hmm. think with your philosophy and your energy and your enthusiasm and guidance through an incubator called Emergence, I think we could get there. So that's my but, challenge to you.
0: I, I love it. I think that's a great idea. I would love to do that. I mean, I, I, I really believe that there is, a, there is a failure in education around that. All of the, well, we see a massive startup ecosystem often founded by people who've studied business mbas commercial finance Mm -hmm. qualifications you do see you do see a lot of creative people doing that but they probably could be better skilled and better educated before they before they do it yeah
1: agree i've said this I mentioned this to you before the interview, but also I've said to the other guests, I've interviewed the storytellers, the difference makers, the domain experts. That I am, rather than just doing these singular interviews, I am wanting and willing and inviting the guests to take part in what I'm calling random collisions. I spoke to someone the other other day, a guest coming up, a Hollywood producer, actually, a very interesting character called Michael Blom, inspirational man. And he said, it's not really random collisions. It, it, it's it's you're, you're doing, these are intentional collisions. I said, yeah, but random collisions sounds better than intentional collisions. So my intent, intentionality is to create these random collisions to engineer them and bring people together with completely different mindsets, experiences and perspectives on the world. Because yeah. I think when you bring people together with those different unique perspectives and skills and passions to talk around problems. In a design thinking environment type workshop, really interesting ideas can emerge, and new relationships can form. Mm-hmm. And who knows what happens when that occurs? And and you, you're just your conversations with the people you've spoken to around one hailer, mm-hmm. is evidence that that's how innovation and and invention happens or emergence occurs. So maybe what I am my random collisions is just a process an experiment in emergence mm-hmm. so i'd invite you to be part of that if you're up for it
0: absolutely absolutely i there's it's it's so it's one of those important things in life to never assume that you're the the guy other people want to meet i want to meet other people who are, who are going to influence me and and yeah. teach me something so I, I i love that i was listening to the i've listened to the 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 last two podcasts as well with jennifer and Kat, and i found them both absolutely fascinating human beings um, yeah, really like- really great very different but but really interesting yeah. so yeah. I think
1: when they collide together maybe you know I've said to them already I you know I'm just looking I'm gonna be the first collision event is with Jennifer and dr. Merritt Moore who's one of my early guests a quantum physicist ballerina yes. currently yes. working.
0: I, I listened to that and she's amazing Yeah, she's something else yeah
1: and so we're gonna be getting on a call in, i think on the 3rd of february that one so yeah if you're if you're up for joining that you're more than welcome no
0: i love it quantum physics is another one of my little side hobbies mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah that's, that's wonderful no i'd love to be involved in anything like that i think what you're trying to do with the the network and sort of allowing allowing for the impossible to become possible is mm-hmm. great idea great way to allow so for emergence see,
1: I- I don't have any answers. All I'm doing is sort of looking at see how I can bring people together and see what answers or solutions emerge. So there you go. But my final question for you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's part of the process, is who do I interview next?
0: Okay, so I, I, have, I have a name. I haven't, asked, I haven't asked her if I can say, say her name, but I'm going to anyway. So I, of the course of my career, and certainly in the last three or four years, I've worked on a consulting basis with the team at Expedia. Mm -hmm. So there is, uh, one of the senior directors at Expedia is called Angelique Miller. And Angelique runs the internal creative team at Expedia. It's called Media Studio. And it is just the most incredible, effectively a startup within a massive tech company. It's one of the best agencies I've ever come across. It is so beautifully run and managed and led by Angelique, and she has created a, what must be the most diverse and inclusive team of any creative agency in, in the world. The team come from, there are, there are people from Peru, Italy, Spain, South Africa, china australia the, 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 such diversity and and she's effectively a female founder but founding this incredible team within this great big organization and having such an incredible influence on that organization and on sustainable travel which is one of the big the big aspects of Expedia. it's, a, it's Expedia is one of the great tech companies that i'm not always a big fan of huge technology companies but it's a it's it really is a great company it, it, treats people well and it gives people an awful lot of freedom to do great things and angelique is one of the the smartest and most amazing leaders in my environment well so there's a name
1: when this when what i i've said to people for is when the podcast goes live and you can share it with them you then ask them and make the introduction and see if they're up for it
0: yeah and she's in austin texas a lot because they have a big headquarter there so perfect there you
1: go Excellent. Well, thank you, Don. I really appreciate your time, your energy, your inspiration, um, your passion. And I really look forward to just watching as these world-changing ideas become manifest.
0: Thank you, mate. And I really appreciate your time and, and support for me over the years. It's been, I'm very glad that we have stayed in touch and stayed friends all these decades, actually. I was yeah, going to say yes, but decades.
1: It's, and it's definitely, we need to get a beer at some point somewhere, ideally New York, Austin or Edinburgh, one of the two, I'll me- maybe even London.
0: I'll, I'll meet you somewhere soon. All right, Mark, thank you.
1: Okay then, all right, cheers. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much and see you next time.